Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 20 and 21. We've got a powerhouse faculty. Let me just read you the list. This is a sort of abbreviated list because I can't go on forever about this, but it's Roy Fleischman, Maya Book, Alan Matsumoto, Ian McGinnis, Frank Buderet, uh, Clay Cockrell, Eric Ritterman, Alan Mentor, Alexis Ogdi, Beth Jonas, Philip Robinson, Jeff Sparks, Nigel Haroon, Stanley Cohen, uh, Lou Bridges, uh, Artie Cavanaugh, myself, and there's more. Michelle Petrie, I'm leaving out a bunch. Check out the uh, program, it's on roomnow.life. Today's case is again, arthritis and colitis. We talked about this last week. Got another one that I thought was interesting and worth teeing up. This is a 47, 57 year old woman who's had a 10 year history of seropositive rheumatoid arthritis really seropositive, meaning CCP greater than 250, RF200, uh, high acute phase reactants, polyarthritis. She's been treated over the last 10 years with a bunch of DMARTs, methotrexate, plaquenil, um, lotus prednisone, um, escalated then to one TNF inhibitor, then another one. She was on those for a long time. Um, that was stopped for lack of efficacy um, about two years ago, and she was put on uh, abatacept and did really, really well. Her arthritis has been doing fabulous. However, about a year ago, nine months ago, she started coming down with abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, 30 pounds of weight loss, had a colonoscopy, was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So <clears throat> in the last um, six months or so, she's been treated with mesalamine and budesonide and was on azathioprine and um, she stays on her RA meds, which is just Orencia, um, and she's not doing well. She's still having bloody diarrhea, and they're gonna have to change her. The question is, what can you use to manage both conditions? Another question is, what's the deal with arthritis and colitis? Is there an association? Well, actually, I spent a little time on the internet looking at this, and we do see patients with colitis and rheumatoid arthritis, although usually it's a, a toss-up as, as to whether this is seronegative RA really masquerading as, or actually enteropathic arthritis masquerading as seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and the same can be said for um, uh, of, a, of the enteropathic causes, whether it's colitis, Crohn's colitis, or ulcerative colitis. So we have a lot of patients who are in that um, ballpark. And uh, yes, if you control their colitis, then you should be able to control their rheumatoid arthritis. And unlike last week's case, in this case, the patient's colitis is out of control, but her RA is doing great, suggesting that this is probably not enteropathic arthritis, that these are probably two separate um, and distinct diagnoses. Maybe also backed up by the fact that she has very high seropositivity, uh, attesting to the fact that this is rheumatoid in origin. The question then is, what can you use that would manage both conditions? Certainly, um, um, maybe methotrexate, sulfasalazine, azathioprine, those uh, steroids, those might work. Uh, of our newer agents uh, and biologics, really, it's the, it's the TNF inhibitors. I'm not sure why they have not used a TNF inhibitor, and it's interesting to note that she was on TNF inhibitors for probably six, seven years. And when she went off of TNF inhibitors is when she developed her colitis. Maybe the TNF inhibitors were working to treat the arthritis and the colitis, but when it stopped working on her arthritis, we took her off that. Now the colitis blooms. That's just a hypothesis of mine. 
But in addition to TNF inhibitors, um, now the JAK inhibitors seem to be very effective, at least in ulcerative colitis, not so much in Crohn's. So that's what's going to happen in this patient. She'll probably be switched over from the abatacept, which is controlling arthritis, not the colitis, and be put on high-dose JAK inhibitor, uh, tofacitinib, and then maybe she can get down to a standard dose of 11 milligrams a day. Uh, again, an interesting scenario, a tough case to manage because her arthritis is doing so well, but GI is looking to rheumatology for guidance, and of course, we told them the JAK inhibitor would be perfectly fine with us. Tune in for more QD Clinics tomorrow. Hi, QD Clinic. Today, no win consults. What? QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. That's roomnow.live, where we aim to change minds, change practice, and change the way you learn in rheumatology. Lord knows it seems to be changing. So, our case today is a 26 year old gal. It's a reconsult, an out of town reconsult. I don't know about you. But out-of-state consults are either really interesting or really disappointing. They're never mundane. You decide which one this is. She's a young gal who has joint pain, and she's here because she's got a positive rheumatoid factor and a family history of rheumatoid arthritis, and her doctors say she has rheumatoid. So I see her the first time, not on any medicine, has joint pain, sort of odd distribution, like... Ankles, elbows, hips, you know, not small joint, not symmetric necessarily. Um, rheumatoid factor was positive. I don't know what tighter, no other test available. So when I see her, really nothing on exam. No synovitis, no stigmata of rheumatoid damage, deformity, etc. And she just has a few tender joints. Um, doesn't sleep all that well, but doesn't meet criteria for fibromyalgia. I do some blood tests, say come back in a few months. Well, because of life's events, she comes back six months later. In that six months, she's been put on uh, DMARDs and biologics by her out-of-state rheumatologist who believed that her rheumatoid factor and family history were enough along with her complaints to give her that diagnosis. And she's been on methotrexate and a TNF inhibitor and maybe better, maybe not. She's coming to me because she's told I'm the guy. So much so that she'll go out of town. She's not really taking any pain medicine, but she has pain. She's not really better, but she's on methotrexate and a TNF inhibitor. So what do you deal? How do you do with these, uh, these kind of, how do you do with these? How do you deal with these cases where you're being asked to be the arbiter of future treatment? The person who should step in and confirm, okie dokie, you're doing the right thing, or no okie dokie, you're not doing the right thing. I find a lot of these patients will come um, and get a second opinion, uh, sometimes at the behest of their treating doctor, sometimes not, because they got a diagnosis, they're on treatment, but they're doing bad. They feel they're not well. They feel they haven't had a good enough response. They have no confidence in the doctor that's treating them or they have a questionable degree of buy-in on the therapies that have been offered to them. And they want you to help them make up their mind. You know, what should be easy is 
us being black and white, us being the expert rheumatologist that we are, being black and white about, you know, do you have the diagnosis? That's my first order of business, confirming the diagnosis with all the facts, if necessary, labs. I don't need x-rays to confirm a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, second, to assess their response to either to prior therapy and current therapy. While doing that, you're also making a judgment on the current state of disease activity, whether that merits further um, attention and change. And then lastly, if they, you know, confirm the diagnosis, have these activity, haven't responded, you're there to assess, you know, and lay out the best practices that are available to that patient uh, for future therapy. But you got to get over these hurdles, the hurdles of, is it the right diagnosis? Second, have they had an appropriate response? Um, and third, you know, are they being appropriately treated? So, you know, the, the, here's the difference, though. I've been around a long time. When I s do the math on all the number of joint exams I've done in my, um, I started in 84, so I'm uh, three years shy of 40 years, 37 years of rheumatology, I've done probably close to 70,000 joint exams. You know, you can't put my joint exam up against a young doc who's been in practice for a year or two where at best there are two, 3,000 joint exams in, and that's if they did a lot during their fellowship, which they probably didn't. Um, I had the benefit of being forced to do clinical trials from day one in my fellowship, so I've done tons of joint exams, and I'm, I used to be a believer in the 10,000 rule, you know, be expert at something, you had to do something 10,000 times. Clinical psychologists have actually shown that it's actually not the number in fact, the number becomes a surrogate for your um, conviction and your devotion and your um, focus on being expert at something. So you might well get there, but if you don't care what you're doing and you do it 10,000 times, you're not going to be very good at it. I think rheumatologists really do care about what they do, and I do think you need to do a lot of them. So my joint exams are different than a lot of the docs who refer me patients, but then again, I've been doing it longer. Am I better? Yes. Um, am I better than an MRI or an ultrasound? No. But I'll argue that an MRI and an ultrasound doesn't even count, doesn't even matter. Because when you look at treat-to-target regimens based on DAS scores, disease activity scores, and treat-to-target regimens based on um, ultrasound and MRI, which are much m more uh, sensitive and you're less likely to achieve a remission with those, you don't do better with the imaging and the, the higher degree of sensitivity to a possible inflammation. So a good joint exam is really all you need is what I'm saying. So again, in this particular case, second time around, joint exam didn't change. A few tender spots, one MCP, um, that's really about it, but no stigmata of inflammation, swelling, effusion, nodules, deformity, uh, limitation of motion, contractures, nothing. Someone who's had rheumatoid arthritis now for mm, a few years um, and hasn't been doing well, or maybe a little bit better. Again, the decisions are easy here. And the decisions are what? You need to make the decision on do you have the right diagnosis or not? And should they stop their therapy? Should they continue their therapy? Or should they change their therapy? If they can't get by the first diagnosis, the first point that I made, meaning confirm the diagnosis. Well, 
or stopping therapy because what's the point of going on with biologics and DMARDs and steroids and blah, blah, blah when they're not even being treated for the right thing? If it is the right diagnosis, then you can get into the weeds of continuing therapy, changing therapy, and moving on, or God forbid, transferring care to you. But you're out of state, remember? Kind of far away. These cases are difficult, but I think you should have heard my approach to this. Maybe it helps your approach. Maybe not. Come to Room Now Live, and I'll tell you more stories. Welcome to Cutie Clinic. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. We think you should spend your time at meetings that matter, meetings that challenge you, meetings that interact with you. RoomNow.Live is such a meeting. The title of today's Cutie Clinic is a common line that I often think but never say because it's the snarky side of me. But boy, it comes out a lot when I ask simple questions. I get an unexpected response and my line the title of today's clinic is what were you thinking my god really what were you thinking and it seems to happen a lot there's some behaviors in patient care that defy explanation let me give you three of them here's a good one new consult for get this joint pain who better to see than a rheumatologist? Let's go over the uh, facts here. You've had this how long? It's affecting you where? What are you taking for it? Nothing. What? What did you say your pain was on a scale of 0 to 10? 5, 6, 7, 9? And you're taking what? Nothing. Can you explain that to me? Another one that seems to go along is, I'm doing good, but my pain is a 10. All right, so let's take these apart. The first one is they're having a lot of pain. They're willing to drive an hour to see you, the specialist. They're willing to spend $400 cash to pay for the best advice money can buy to get into why their ankle, their toe, their back, their head, whatever is hurting, and yet they haven't tried an over-the-counter medicine. They haven't taken a prescription medicine from the other three doctors they saw before you. This is a red flag. Someone who comes to you with a lot of pain and is either unwilling or oblivious to the option of trying a medicine. Of course, the most common response is, I don't like taking medicines. And I'm thinking, really? Okay. So, the plan in today's visit, let me just write it in here. Prayer, um, rabbit's feet, um, biofeedback. Am I allowed to use a prescription or no? What were you thinking? Let's go to my next pet peeve. Um, they're taking um, a biologic. You gave them a biologic. And the follow-up visit's going to be at six weeks, eight weeks, two months, three months, whatever. And they come back and you say, so how's that um, abatacept working for you? Oh, I stopped it. Oh, what happened? Well, prescription ran out. No, I, I gave you, you know, a month's supply and three refills. Well, when, when the month was up, I stopped taking the medicine because I, I assumed that's what you wanted me to do. No, that's why I gave you three refills. I kind of explained that we're going to take this medicine until I see you and then we're going to assess how that worked out. Well, no, they will have stopped it after four weeks because, again, they 
were either obtuse or they saw a television ad that made them worry, thinking that they probably should be stopping it. Or either their neighbor said something, or their PCP surgeon, God knows whoever, whoever else knows nothing about biologics other than what they learned from television, was saying, oh, really, you're taking what? Oh, my goodness, that's, um, um, that's one on television, right? So they stopped medicine. They stop it without calling you, and they expect on the follow-up visit that you're just going to resume the plan, even though they aborted the plan. So in both these instances, I mean, there's a lot of education that needs to go on. I didn't spend enough time telling that patient, you need to take this every day. You need to take this once a week. You need to take this until I see you in three months. Then we're going to assess. If you have any questions, you call me. Nobody stops this medicine but me because nobody knows this medicine but me. I'm the guy who prescribed it. Not your primary care, not your neighbor, the surgeon, not your hairdresser whose mother was taking that medicine and, and passed away suddenly. Again, you got to call me if you have a concern because I'm going to be the one who knows. you got to educate patients on, on, on the scenarios that are going to get in the way of effective empiric trials, effective patient care. One more, what were you thinking was the no-show patient who, when you asked your staff, why didn't Mr. Foster come in? Um, he called, um, or be even better, they didn't call, and you call we called, and we said, what happened? And he said, oh, too sick, couldn't come in. Too sick to go to the doctor's office who might be able to then actually do something about the problem as opposed to you staying home and, and watching Maury Povich look at the results of a genetic test. Again, makes no sense. Um, patients who are too sick to come in um, might be too sick in the future to come in multiple times. Um, I think that, again, telling the patient, um, come to see us when you're sick, is something important. I think that actually nipping in the bud, when I find out about it, I'll call the patient and say, oh, I heard you were really sick. You know, if you, you should have come in, but what can I do to fix your problem today over the phone? Because I missed your appointment, and now we can do this phone, um, this televisit, um, by video or telephone even. Although I don't like, as you know, if you read my recent blog, I don't like telephone visits. Um, but you nip in the bud by calling the patient at, on the spot or when they come back, explain to them, I'm sorry you couldn't come in. Um, but the problem with that is, uh, this is not me doing benevolent work. This is unfortunately a business and no-shows really are hurting my business. And if you can't come, give us some fair warning so we can fill your slot with the many, you know, hundreds of people who are looking to get in to see us uh, sooner rather than later. So again, too sick to come in is another one of those, oh my goodness. Don't be too sick. Come to Room Now Live. Tune in tomorrow. This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. 12 hours of CME on a Saturday and half day on Sunday in late March. You could be there or you could be home. Check it out. Today, we're going to talk about fever by the numbers. This week, I saw a patient who's had fever 
that's been going on now for a better part of a year, year and a half, um, with a number of other systemic features. And of course, she sent to me with the thought, maybe she has Stills disease. Well, you know, to have Stills disease, you have to have a quotidian fever. What is a quotidian fever? That is a fever that rises above 102 every day and then returns to baseline in the same day. Quotidian fever is usually a true circadian fe uh, a pattern fever, meaning that they get the fever same time every day, whether it's at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, 11 p.m. at night, 2 a.m. in the morning. It's almost never at 7 a.m. in the morning, by the way. But it occurs every day, no matter what. It's like the ever-ready battery bunny. It just keeps on coming, and it doesn't stop. Our patient um, instead has bouts of fever that last um, three days, and then they stop. And in between, she has other features like rashes and horrific-looking labs and whatnot. And when trying to consider the etiology of fever, obviously, in a case like this, you're probably going to do um, an infectious workup, um, measures to exclude malignancy, uh, and then, you know, to um, consider an auto-inflammatory or autoimmune cause. And in this case, um, the patient gets sent to me, and I, I make this fairly easy. I mean, you can actually make a diagnosis of auto-inflammatory disease without genetic testing based on the number of days of fever. So, classically, amongst the CAPS, the cryopyrin-associated periodic uh, syndromes, there are, uh, there's familial cold, familial cold auto-inflammatory syndrome, Nomad and Sinca, and the Muckle-Well syndrome. Well, SCAS has fever that lasts less than a day. You know, the air conditioner comes on, they get a whiff of that, they get a fever, they get some stomach manifestations, they're relatively brief. It's a one-day deal. That's a childhood illness that's um, usually present since birth, etc. Now, if the fever is more than a day and up to three days, the two cond conditions you should consider is familial Mediterranean fever and Muckle-Well syndrome. Uh, and both of those can be diagnosed through genetic testing. Both of those could be diagnosed by empiric trials. Maybe use colchicine or an IL-1 inhibitor with FMF. Um, IL-1 inhibitors work very, very well in Muckle-Well syndrome. Uh, if it's more than three days, three to seven days, the conditions are usually seen in children. And that would include the FAPA syndrome. That's the lymphadenopathy uh, oral ulcer syndrome, which is called the Marshall syndrome, or the hyper-IgD syndrome, the mevalonate uh, kinase deficiency syndrome. Um, the hyper-IgD syndrome, or HIDS, can be diagnosed genetically. There is no genetic test for FAPA, but again, they get three to seven days of fever. If it's more than that, if it's between two and three weeks, usually it's around 10 days, 14 days, sometimes 20 days, you should consider TRAPS. The, uh, the, uh, the TNF receptor associated periodic syndrome. Uh, and that's a very interesting syndrome and in that it is longer. It used to be called Hibernian fever, you know, um, uh, European descent, Australians, uh, et cetera, uh, might be at higher risk for that, but it's a longer set of fever. And when you get to Stills disease, the difference is Stills disease is every day. Stills disease and uh, systemic JIA and Schnitzler syndrome they occur every day, like clockwork. So just by considering the number of days someone has fever, you may make a presumptive diagnosis. 
And that's, in this case, I made a presumptive diagnosis of FAPA syndrome in my patient with three days of fever that kept recurring and she had lymphadenopathy, etc. Now, I'm going to confirm that by genetic testing. If you're getting a patient, you have undiagnosed fever and you don't know what to do, I'm going to tell you what to do. You could spend a lifetime trying to get your lab and their insurance to approve genetic testing. Forget it. Go to a website called Invitae.com, I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. Order an auto-inflammatory panel. Set yourself up as a prescribing physician there, and the patient can pay for the test themselves. used to be 100 bucks, now it's 250 bucks. And for this, you order the auto-inflammatory panel, you'll get 76 genes assayed for for all of these syndromes I just mentioned, pretty much all of them. There is no genetic diagnosis for Schnitzler's or Stills or systemic JIA um, or FAPA for that, for that matter. But nonetheless, you can diagnose a whole lot of other things by doing this. Uh, and uh, you order the test, they'll send the kit to the patient, they'll bill the patient directly, the patient pays for it, you get a result back in, within three weeks. It really is the way to go. That's fever by numbers. We'll see you at Room Now Live. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cushwood, RoomNow.com. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, a next generation meeting. Get connected at RoomNow.live. Our case is monarticular rheumatoid. What? So I have a 60 year old man who, in fact, is seropositive with a CCP of. All right, it's only 38. It's like not like it's big-time CCP. But he's got a chronic monarthritis. The story is that about two years ago, he went and had um, a torn meniscus repaired. And after that procedure, he started having recurrent chronic effusions in that same knee. The orthopedist went back in, did a repeat synovectomy, sent all the fluid and tissue off for infection crystals, Cancer, you name it, nothing comes back, just inflammatory stuff. Inflammatory synovial fluid um, requiring intraarticular steroid injections. Uh, and after they guess they get their, did their third or fourth, they were fed up and sent it to me, the rheumatologist. Uh, and I did the same thing. I managed him with repeated aspirations, uh, intermittent uh, uh, articular steroids, uh, and finally, um, after doing that and observing that there was no other etiology, meaning there was no evidence of uh, chronic fungal infection, TB, um, crystals, um, I decided this was going to be a chronic inflammatory monarthritis, and I was going to treat it at, with, rheumato- with rheumatoid arthritis medicines like methotrexate. He did great on methotrexate. He put him on methotrexate. He stayed on it for over a year, decided on his own to go off methotrexate. It came back. And guess what? That's where we are now. We're almost two plus years down the line. He's doing great on methotrexate. And the question is, what do you call this? Does it have a name? Is it something that you can call? I mean, I'm calling it seropositive rheumatoid because he has one joint and a CCP, rheumatoid factor, all the serology is negative. He had inflammatory markers when this was hot. Um, with C, uh, high sed rates, high CRPs, 3.3 milligrams per deciliter, but everything else was negative. Um, and uh, the question is, what can he expect? Um, there isn't a lot of guidance. I found one report in a German um, uh, journal um, that said that uh, you could call these chronic, these monarticular presentations either 
uh, re, uh, an acute monoarthritis, acute recurrent, persistent chronic, and then recurrent chronics. But the bottom line is that the literature suggests that uh, 70% of these will resolve in one year, 80% will resolve in two years, and 90% will evolve in three years. That's kind of been my experience. I probably managed, I don't know, 20 of these in my career. And that's about what happens. The patient's my patient for a year, two, or three. Uh, and then most of them go away. And when I f call them back, they say, yeah, it's doing well. I don't need to come in. It's not like they just got fed up with me and went somewhere else. Uh, so uh, you basically have to wait these cases out. You have to manage them and hopefully um, not leave them with any damage. Because, again, they do have inflammatory tissue and inflammatory fluid in there. So it's no reason to not be aggressive and use either DMARDs or even biologics for that matter to control them. But this is a little bit like a seronegative RA, maybe even more so because it's just one joint in that you sh even though you may have a label for it and a treatment for it, you should always worry about what you're going to call this. So this is a case where you're, where when you don't have a firm diagnosis, you end up treating what they have and being appropriate and matching the aggressiveness of what they have with the aggressiveness of therapy. But in this case, um, every visit, I'm going to rethink the diagnosis and wonder, you know, could this be malignancy? Could this be a crystal? Could this be an occult infection that's not showing up? Could this be what it probably is in the long run, a seronegative sort of spondoarthritis of some sort, although he has no other features to suggest that at this point. Interesting cases require interesting management. Tune in for more QD Clinics.